If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elizabeth was political, she was cunning, but she was lucky. She had these brilliant men around her. But the difference is that Mary did everything that Elizabeth did in terms of statesmanship. She brought in uh, religious toleration, she listened to ministers, she worked with her ministers, she listened to the men around her. But because of the completely different situation, that there were long, long feuds in Scotland, and it is, uh, I think, not wrong to say that it's, it's much more violent. No one's going to break into Elizabeth's supper chamber, drag off her secretary and stab him. That was Kate Williams on how Mary Queen of Scots's ruling style has been compared to that of Elizabeth I. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, you'll hear from the historian, author and broadcaster Kate Williams, whose latest book, Rival Queens, explores the relationship between Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots. Kate met up with our deputy digital editor, Ellen Evans, at our History Weekend in Winchester last year to discuss one of the most dramatic stories of the Tudor era. And their conversation also touches on the new film, Mary, Queen of Scots, which is due to be released in UK cinemas in a few days' time. Here's what they had to say. I'm really pleased to be chatting with the author and historian Kate Williams ahead of your talk at our Winchester History Weekend. Um, And today we're talking about your book, uh, Rival Queens, The Portrayal of Mary, Queen of Scots. So it looks at one of the most fascinating relationships in in history um, between Mary, Queen of Scots and her cousin Elizabeth I. Um, And I thought we could maybe start by, by looking at Mary, Queen of Scots as a young queen. She was made queen at just six days of age and immediately she became this this pawn in the struggle. So what can you tell us about that? Yes, immediately she's a pawn. So she's queen at six days of age because her father dies and her mother is con- is the consort and now she's regnant for her. And like so many other child monarchs, Mary is battled over, struggled over, the power groupings are around her and there's a fear that she will die like so many other small children. She becomes a pawn already, a pawn to her mother, desperately trying to protect the country, but also her mother's family, the Guises, the sacrifice to their ambition. Uh, Henry VIII wants her, he wants her to marry Edward VI. Already, even before she is, even before, even before she's 
couldn't even sit up. She's a, she's a pawn in other people's ambitions and being pushed around and moved around for other people's ambitions. Now, I know that always child monarchs are, they suffer. You know, they, they're the ones that are seen as, they are very much weakened and, and in weak position. But if you're a female child monarch, you're the weakest of all. And she certainly, I think, suffers. I don't think any prince would have been treated in the way she was. When she's five, she's finally sent out of the country to be brought up in France, partly for her own safety, but also because her mother knows that if she's in France being brought up as the wife of the future king, then the king will send ships, he'll send soldiers, he'll send troops for her to help her in Scotland and he'll buoy her up against the attacks of Henry VIII. So essentially Mary is sent off as an exchange, as a pawn, when she's just five. And that wouldn't happen if she'd been the future king, but she's a future queen, so off she goes to be a queen consort and she's not... She is actually a queen herself. Mm-hmm. And can we talk a little about her, her lineage and the influence of the Guise family? Um, so her position in, in the line of succession and the, and the influence of her French family? Mary has a key position in the English succession because her grandmother, Margaret, is Henry VIII's sister. So although Henry VIII believes he's going to have many, many sons and many, many children, it's pretty clear when you look at the actual family tree that after... Edward dies childless, Mary dies childless, and Elizabeth is there with no signs yet of having a child. Mary is the next heir. And what much of Catholic Europe makes of the fact is that Mary is actually legitimate. There is the argument that Elizabeth is not because her father, he made her illegitimate. She was a lady Elizabeth. So Mary is very much the heir to the English throne after Elizabeth. And even though Henry has tried to move her out of his will, she has this very royal English blood. But she also has this Guise family. Her Her father married Mary of Guise as his second wife. The first wife died, his second wife. And it actually... Mary of Guise, who became Mary Queen of Scots' mother, she was considered as a wife for Henry VIII, but uh, decided, you know, she didn't really have the quite, quite the right type of neck. So she married, uh, married James, and they're an incredibly ambitious family of the Guises. They're very ambitious. What they want is power in the French court more than anything, and that's why they want baby Mary, infant Mary, to be sent over to them. A point you made that was really interesting there that really interested me was the idea that Mary, her legitimacy is is embedded in her again and again, whereas Elizabeth had completely the opposite journey. And I'm interested in how that informed both of their their, their formations growing up. Where Mary was, I mean, she was betrayed throughout her life, but the first betrayal was sending her to France when she was five because, yes, she was safe, But the problem was that unlike Elizabeth, she didn't grow up in the environment. Elizabeth created this circle of loyal men around her, such as Cecil, who would never leave her side, whereas Mary didn't have that. So Mary becomes imbibed into the French court and and she becomes... The geezers are always around her, telling her how to act, telling her how to behave. But yes, Mary is told over and over again she is the Queen of Scotland, she will be the Queen of France, and the King of France encourages her to say that she's Queen of England as well, because in Catholic eyes, she is. She is the, she is the Catholics feel she is the Queen. And so she simply 
doesn't have that question that Elizabeth has, constantly trying to prove herself legitimate. Mary, that's Mary. That's perhaps the biggest of many Elizabeth's problems. One of the biggest of Elizabeth's problems is the argument that she's not legitimate. Mary is, but she has many problems which are created all by her family in the beginning and all by the treatment of her, really. They don't treat her like a queen regnant when she's a little girl. They treat her like a future queen consort. They treat her like a princess who's there to be sold off, to be married into other families as in, in exchange for money or ships. She's treated like this mini broodmare, which she is because of her sex and because that's what royal women do. But she's a queen regnant and it really underpins how people there's the, the, the queen regnant is so rare mary's precedent was the maid of norway just a little girl who was sent who who alexander the third of scotland died his children were dead and this little norwegian princess nine-year-old was was the only queen sent over was died of seasickness in orkney there's no precedent when mary was born she was not only the first mary's femaleness and elizabeth's femaleness both of them they're both women, and it means as girls they're seen as weak and irrelevant, and it means as women that people are constantly trying to take their power. And Elizabeth, they do it by trying to undermine her, ignoring her, leaving her out of decisions, meeting Privy Council meeting without her. Mary, they do it by trying to kidnap her, abduct her, attack her, uh, because she is always to them physically weak. She's always to them just a woman. She can be physically attacked and assaulted, and thus they see it reduced. Mm-hmm. And we see her position superseded by by the men in her life constantly in your account. Well, Mary, after her husband dies, she becomes Queen of France. Her husband dies uh, very early on. She is an 18-year-old widow. She returns at this point to take up her throne in Scotland. Her mother, who's been Queen Regent, has finally died. And so Mary takes up her throne, and the people are delighted to see her, but already the men around her are trying to undermine her. They want her to be a figurehead and let them do the ruling. It, very similar to what happened to Elizabeth I, but both women fight back. So Mary's half-brother, James Stuart, the Earl of Murray, he wants her to be a figurehead and he is constantly trying to undermine her. And you see it over and over again. Mary marries because... Monarchs are supposed to marry and supposed to continue the bloodline and the Virgin Queen isn't an option for her. And one reason why she does it is, is because almost as soon as she arrives in Scotland, men are trying to abduct her, attack her, talking about abducting her. Because they're talking about abducting her to marry her. They think if they can abduct her and assault her and rape her, then they can be the king and she can be the queen. Because I think we always forget that really very, it's only until uh, Prince Philip, he's really the first consort of a reigning queen not to ask to be king essentially albert wanted to be king uh, princess charlotte's husband she died obviously because she became queen he he uh, very much hoped that he would be the king and we see it with william mary the second she's the one with the, with the claim she it's william and mary and we see it with queen anne and certainly so when mary marries lord darnley he wants to be king he says i'm the king and there's a constant battle over it and when she has a son yes it's complex because yes the son strengthens you she sends her messenger off to tell elizabeth in a flash that she's had a baby and elizabeth we see her in a vulnerable moment and she says i am of barren stock but at the same time 
it's it's it, Mary can now be deposed for her son, which is the lords have tried to depose her over and over again. A half brother, they they famous story about when they killed her secretary in front of her and the secretary's a red herring they weren't after him they're trying to imprison her and disempower her and now when they've got a little boy there's their excuse they've got to get rid of mary and say that they're governing for the little prince so having a son is both a moment of joy and a moment when you can be disempowered again so you can see why Elizabeth remained the Virgin Queen. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned her husband Lord Darnley there and, and for this for this account you've been poring over the many letters of many many letters of Mary Queen of Scots and something you, you found that um, is new is um, around the murder of, of Lord Darnley. What can you tell us about that? The murder of Lord Darnley in February 1567 Edinburgh was rocked by an explosion. Darnley, the house in which she was staying, it had been blown up and Darnley and his servant were nearby in a nearby orchard and it looked a bit cluderous because there's a chair, a dagger, a rope and a couple of dressing gowns. And it's a mystery who killed Lord Darnley. And I looked at all the evidence and added up various movements. And what no one has really talked about is the fact that at the time many people thought it was uh, James Stuart, Mary's half-brother, and talked about it being him. And he actually didn't happen to be there on the spot. He just happened to be away, popped out on the exact time that the murder was going to happen. And there had been a lot of discussion about dispatching Darnley and killing Darnley. And Mary was told that they they said, we're going to try and attack Darnley. And James Stewart is going to look through his fingers at it. He was in charge. James Stewart was ineffably in charge of all the other lords. They looked up to him because they knew if Mary was to die or if Mary was to be deposed, he would be the one, because he was the one with illegitimate royal blood, but royal blood all the same, who would rule for the baby prince. He was in charge. Many other men did his dirty work, but he's the one who benefited. And so if you look at the murder, not just did the murder happen, and then afterwards, all the men around Mary, her half-brother who is advising her, even though he's tried to abduct her various times and attack her, he's saying, don't do anything, we'll look into it for you. So what makes... So he it works out fantastically for him... Darnley is dead and he needs him out of the way because if if Mary was dead and Darnley was alive, then there, Darnley would be king. Darnley is dead. Mary is is discredited and being, really being framed for this murder of which she knew very well. She had an idea that they were going to attack Darnley, but she just they were going to rough him up, but not that night. And she didn't, she, so she knew nothing of the murder. So Mary is accused of this murder of which she was innocent and framed by the men by the men around her. And it's a brilliant plot for them. It's the perfect, brilliant plot. And it is incredibly successful because Mary has a suspicion that's them. She knows it's them, but what can she do? You know, put her half-brother on trial? She's in a, in a overwhelming sense of shock and it's a brilliant brilliant plot by James Murray and he gets it he Mary is deposed she's seen as unfit she's imprisoned taken off and imprisoned in a faraway castle and he gets it he gets to be regent and you get the power and you get the money and it was very important there was a lot Mary when Mary turned 25 she could really uh, confirm and assent land grants or withdraw them. And a lot of the lords are terrified that she'd take their land away, in which Darnley had thought they might do. So Murray, Murray's protecting his land, he's protecting um, his, his money, and he, he, all of his, it's like a boys' club. 
Order the clerk. They're like, yeah, let's just if we depose Mary, if we kill Darnley and depose Mary together, we'll just share the spoils. It's a it's a den of thieves. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, as you just said, it works out incredibly well for for all of all of those yes. those plotters. But for Mary. Um, you know, she's deposed, she, she's imprisoned and then she flees. And, and this is a great opportunity, I guess, then to talk about her relationship with her cousin. Um, what can you tell us about their communication at this time and how did Elizabeth receive it? Mary flees into England. It's a big and terrible and fateful decision. She flees into England because she escapes from her imprisonment. And actually, it's just... You just don't know. You don't know. She didn't realise that there was a groundswell of support coming for her because people found James Stuart Murray very high-handed. They didn't like him and they felt that he wasn't the royal. So he's very he's very disliked, increasingly disliked. And so there is a groundswell of support for her. So had she stayed in Scotland in one of her strongholds, of which there were, it's I, I think it's very likely that if maybe she wouldn't have gained her throne, but there might there would be long, long struggles to get it back between her side and James Stewart's side. And I think she probably would have won in the end. But her decision is that she flees into England in the hope that Elizabeth will have the sympathy with a fellow queen and put her back on her throne. And for Elizabeth, that's a complete nightmare. Her ministers do not want Mary put back on the throne. They don't think much of female rule, unless it's Elizabeth. And they also don't like Mary because she's Catholic. The ministers around Elizabeth, we don't know how much she knew, uh, Cecil in particular, have been paying James Stuart, have been paying the various pro-English Protestant lords to try and undermine Mary at any any attempt. They've they've been funding the coup attempts, funding some of the attack attempts. They've been paying. And um, because they want a a government they perceive as Protestant, so English-friendly in place. And so Cecil doesn't want Mary back on the throne because he's got everything he wants. He wants James Stuart to be the regent for the baby king. So he dissuades, you know, Elizabeth has an impossible position in her heart. She does want to put Mary back on the throne, but the ministers around her don't want it to happen. They want it to stop. And um, therefore, and Elizabeth... Elizabeth understands it's going to be, she's a cautious woman, it's going to be an expensive, complicated war even to do it. So she says there has to be an inquiry into Mary's conduct over the death of Lord Darnley and begins this endless trial inquiry based on evidence Mary isn't allowed to see that's forged by James Stewart. Because And the aim is not to pronounce Mary guilty of anything because then they'd have to punish her and that would be whole of Catholic Europe would, the wrath would descend and not pronounce Mary innocent because then you have to have to put her back on the throne. But really they want no verdict. So Mary is in the suspended animation in under house arrest in England for, for nearly 20 years. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. 
That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. You've already said it, but I think it's a point worth revisiting that both of these women have incredible power in a, in a man's world. And you've written about many royal women before. And they, I think, I guess the reputation is that um, Elizabeth was very political and very cunning in her queenship and Mary perhaps didn't play the game as well. But I think in this book, you kind of don't agree with that. Is that fair to say? Elizabeth was political. She was cunning, but she was lucky. She had these brilliant men around her. And But the, the difference is that Mary did everything that Elizabeth did in terms of statesmanship. She brought in uh, religious toleration. She listened to ministers. She worked with her ministers. She listened to the men around her. But because of the completely different situation, that there were long, long feuds in Scotland and there was... It is, it is. Uh, I think, not wrong to say that it's, it's much more violent. No one's going to break into Elizabeth, Elizabeth's supper chamber, drag off her secretary and stab him. That's just not good. No one's going to say they're going to abduct her and attack her. They might make this sort of very, very sort of nervous jokes about her, but it's not going to be plotted about in the taverns. Uh, Mary's in a position in which it is, a, it is a much more physical culture and they are going to take their power from her. So whatever she does, there, and, and she has also the added problem that she hasn't lived in exile in the country developing uh, loyal men around her, which she would have done had she not been sent away. So Mary is a queen who is one who could be just as good as Elizabeth, but she's in, the, in a country in which, and so, and the, in which the, for so long, the, the lords, her half-brother, all the rest of them have been used to doing exactly as they please. They've got out of the habit of being governed and they want to govern themselves. So she is, I think... She did, there's nothing that she could have done that would have made her situation. She does everything that she could. Yes, perhaps she shouldn't have married, but it's only in retrospect that the Virgin Queen's decision not to marry is seen as such a brilliant one at the time. It caused much distress and much concern and much worry because where was the heir, where was the child to continue continue the dynasty? And there was a lot of anger against Elizabeth near the end of her reign for it. And it isn't unarguable that it was Mary's son who continued the line because Elizabeth did not. And I think that it is it is a big question when we look at both queens it neither neither can be seen as perfect because elizabeth doesn't marry and mary does marry and it causes marriage causes all of mary's problems elizabeth doesn't marry but the not the not marrying causes all of elizabeth's problems which is chiefly not having an heir when she dies 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'd just like to go back to, there was, uh, um, actually Tracy Borman wrote a feature in, back in 2012 um, for BBC History magazine. Um, she said that Mary Queen of Scots was overrated and a pampered princess. Um, and I, I guess the fact that you don't think this is the case. Well, it's not the case. It's absolutely not the case. I mean, yes, she was a princess in the French court, but no more pampered than any other royal. And that was hardly her fault. It, it wasn't her choice that she went off to be married to be married off into the French court. It simply was the way she was treated. She was swapped for soldiers by her mother. That was hardly something we can blame Mary for. She came back to Scotland when she was 18. So I think we can put that one to rest. And I don't think... And the overrated is completely wrong as well. Um, The overrated is simply... She was a hard... She was a queen who tried her best to rule as a queen. The only thing that Mary, Queen of Scots, is guilty of in in the early years... Yes, she did agree agree to the, the plot to depose Elizabeth, but only after she'd been in a miserable, cruel and pretty grim house arrest for tw- nearly 20 years when nothing could escape. In the other years, the only mistake she makes, what she tries to do is, exact, is she tries to rule. She doesn't want to be a figurehead while all the men make the decisions. She tries to rule because she is a woman of royal blood and that's the way she feels she's the rightful queen. She tries to do it. So everything... But, we, we, but uh, we congratulate other women for fighting for their spot. We congratulate Victoria. We congratulate Elizabeth II. We congratulate Elizabeth I. But when Mary, Queen of Scots, does it, it seems to me that some people think, oh, well, maybe she should have just let the men rule for her and sort of smiled along. Um, whereas, whereas we do, it is Elizabeth I, we congratulate her all the way for fighting. Um, and, uh, it, it, and I think, I think that... What, she, what Mary shows, above all, is almost how impossible it was to be a queen in the 16th century. You cannot do it because of the problem that you are a woman and you're a woman's, a woman's body. A woman is seen as weak. A woman's body is seen as vulnerable and can be taken and can be seized. And you seize her body, you seize her power. And Elizabeth is not only protected because the court, there is, it's a much more protected court and it's, much more, it's a court in which the civil servants might try and undermine her, but yet they're not going to kidnap her, but also by the fact that Elizabeth does not marry. So, this is, but this is a problem. What do you do if you're a queen and you want to marry? And we see this struggle throughout history. Uh, Victoria and Albert are always fighting for power constantly fighting for power and by this point victoria is a constitutional monarch and albert is is given the title prince consort it is it is perpetually the problem of a queen until we have elizabeth ii a true constitutional monarch because whoever you marry is then going to undermine you perpetually is going to undermine you and undermine your position so no i can't i can't agree at all what the one thing that comes across in your book is how charismatic both of these queens were, but I think in very different ways, it seems. And um, what can you talk about the charisma of both of their characters? Mary had an amazing charisma. She was five foot eleven. She charmed everyone she spoke to, every one of her captors, even the head of the inquiry into her conduct, the Duke of Norfolk, then thought he might make her wife number four. So she had this incredible charisma, this incredible uh, ability to charm, which she did have during the French court when she was very insecure and surrounded by people trying to seize her position. Um, Elizabeth too had this incredible charisma, this incredible speech, The incre- but where, well, of course, Elizabeth ruled for much longer than Mary ever did. Mary's rule was very much curtailed and, and cut short because of what happened to her. And Elizabeth's effective propaganda of the Gloriana, the Virgin Queen, was you know, quite brilliant. And I do think that had Mary managed to stay on the throne for longer, had 
had had the Lords constantly not been trying to take power from her in every way they could and finally succeeded, then she would have been able to create that propaganda too. But they were incredibly charismatic, strong, determined figures, physically strong and mentally strong. And yet two women like that, they are still being undermined by the men around them. It would be really great to talk about um, Mary's situation in this house arrest, this miserable house arrest that she was in, um, and how she um, petitioned Queen Elizabeth um, for a meeting and for what what was her aim during this time? While Mary was under house arrest, she was desperate to escape. She was begging Elizabeth for a meeting, begging her Elizabeth to talk to her. I mean, let's face it, she was not guilty of Darnley's murder. And even if she had been, the evidence that Elizabeth was shown was ridiculous. It was a load of idiotic forged letters. There was nothing in them that could possibly... Uh, stand up in a real court. Therefore, Mary was not allowed to see them. So she was tried on evidence she wasn't allowed to see. It was utterly ridiculous, simply because they knew it was pointless evidence that wouldn't hold up any scrutiny whatsoever. So... Mary is convinced Elizabeth, she's just being misled by her advisors, that she can save her, that she can can look after her. She's even begging her to go and live in France, but Elizabeth won't have that either. So Elizabeth's very hard on her. She won't, I mean, yes, maybe she can, can't put her back on her throne because that's going to be too much of a military operation, but why not let her go and live in France? Uh, what she, I mean, yes, she might plot against her, but... Uh, maybe she won't. Uh, she didn't. I mean, it's very, it's quite clear that Mary didn't plot against Elizabeth, right? And she was just begging her for friendship, trying to do anything right until the last minute. And the last minute, um, she, uh, the absolute last minute, that's when she gave in, when she, her spirit was all otherwise broken. So she's begging Elizabeth for freedom, but Elizabeth is never going to give her any freedom. The only way Mary could have got got away is that she had to physically escape. She was never going to be allowed out. They were going to keep her there till she died. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's a very, very tragic end to the strong queen. And, and um, I wonder if we could look at Elizabeth a minute. What, what did the decision to have Mary Queen of Scots executed represent for Elizabeth? Well, Elizabeth didn't want to kill her. She wanted someone else to do it. She didn't. She ummed and ahed because she did have sympathy for her. But mo- most of all, she felt two things. She knew that she'd be seen as unsympathetic if she killed another woman, and indeed she was. The Victorians thought she was very... There didn't any amount of men she could kill, that was fine, but a woman was going too far. And also, she feared Catholic Europe, but I think most importantly, she thought that if you could kill a queen, then what's so special about a queen at all? What is special about a queen if you can kill, a, kill, kill one? And she feared that she was undermining monarchy, and she was. And I think that is one reason why the ministers around her were quite so keen on it, because yeah, they, they didn't like divine right of queens and kings. They didn't like Elizabeth always telling them what she thought they should do. So they want the idea of monarchy to be undermined. And Elizabeth was correct. It's absolutely correct to say executing Mary, Queen of Scots, ushered in the possibility of killing Charles I. And what can you tell us about um, those final moments, kind of the, the struggle of, of Mary to petition Elizabeth in those final final moments? Elizabeth is begged and begged and Mary... Elizabeth Elizabeth doesn't realise necessarily when she signs the arrest warrant how fast it's going to be enacted. What she does is she 
she just signs it and then it's whizzed off as fast as you can imagine without her being told. And they, they kill Mary as fast as they can. And Mary's told that evening that she's going to be executed first thing the next morning. So she barely has any time to put her things in order, barely has any time to um, work through everything that she has to or talk, talk to her servants. And it's not, it's not she's still writing letters at 2am in the morning to the King of France saying, I'm about to be killed. So she kind of lies on her bed and the, the, the lady-in-waiting reads to her from the biblical tales but she still can't sleep because it's utter miserable and she is she doesn't beg elizabeth at the last minute the last letter is to the king of france because she knows the decision has been made and her cousin has decided to, to execute her and instead she vows to take that execution in a way of dignity and she does she does take despite everything that they try not to have a bit of catholic martyr they take her heart and they bury it under the um castle so she can't be catholic martyr her final image of her praying and dressed in red the colors of catholic martyrdom it it's it's seared into the mind of catholic europe at the fact that she was sacrificed i'm interested to find out um there's a film that i'm sure you're aware of um which comes out later this year about mary queen of scots and it has their meeting which famously didn't happen but i'm really interested to see what you make of that decision well, I think most uh, films and TV shows do show the two queens meeting. And it is inescapable that in a book, in life, the drama of letters is the most exciting one. But I've, in my own books that have been optioned for film, long um, debates in letters, they tend to be dramatised as a meeting because simply it's just, if you watch letters being written back and forth in a movie, it's just generally not the way in which movies work. I even think if are quite modern movies and TV shows, people don't really text or email each other very much in a, even a thing set in a modern day where most of us, you know, you get on a train and we're all staring, hopelessly at our email, emailing all day long, but they actually, they actually don't email much in, I mean, you've got, you've got mail and things. So I, I, I think that's one thing that you, the, the drama of the relationship is very strong in the letters. It's very emotional. In their, they're constantly meeting in their letters, the, the exchange back and forth, but um, they never do. And also Mary wanted a meeting for two reasons. She wanted Elizabeth to meet her and talk to her and be charmed by her, but she also wanted to be publicly confirmed as Elizabeth's heir, uh, 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 publicly confirmed into, for the whole of Europe. And it seems to me from looking at the what, we, what I've seen so far with the movie is that it's a private meeting, not a public meeting. So Mary didn't get everything that she wanted. It, I, I think it, you know, it would have had to be initially, because a meeting was talked about, it was going to be a meeting between two queens, and um, which was obviously a huge meeting. And I, made, I picked up, I picked up quite a big mistake in my book, actually, because I wrote, um, I was saying something, it could have been like the field of the cloth of gold. And I said, oh, two queens can't meet up to drink tea. And then I realised you can't really be drinking any tea in the 16th century. <laughs> so I, I, I do think that... Um, there, I mean, movies change history, and but I do think that in, in an awful lot of movies we see uh, a, a relationship in letters being dramatised as a meeting, and that that is simply the, the the way in which a movie actually works. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a really fascinating account of the two queens, and thanks so much for your time today. Thank, Thank you talk. so much. Thank you. That was Kate Williams, rival queens. The Betrayal of Mary, Queen of Scots, is out now in the UK, published by Hutchinson. In the US, it's also available 
under the title The Betrayal of Mary Queen of Scots and published by Pegasus. And Kate has written a piece on Mary Queen of Scots for the January issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also in this issue, we have articles on the Treaty of Versailles, Roman Britain's final frontier, the greatest leaders of the 20th century, and a whole lot more. Look out for our January issue in all good retailers and on many digital formats. Plus, head to historyextra.com for lots more articles about Mary Queen of Scots and Elizabeth I. OK, well, we've now come to the end of this episode, but we will return on Thursday to discuss one of the most famous crime stories of the 1960s. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.